Uh, let me welcome all of you again. My name is Kyle. This is Uplift. Glad you're here. Uh, this message tonight here at Uplift will be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online class called The Conversation. So if you're watching this Sunday, glad you're here. It'll also be on our podcast, Anchor Point. So if you found us on Anchor Point, glad that you are listening. We are in a series this summer called Uplift Mixtape. We're just kind of bringing a lot of folks in. Uh, I am this week. Next week, there is no uplift. We are actually going to be uh, at the culmination of uh, VBS in our worship center for an event called FanBlitz. So we won't be back in here for a couple of weeks. But uh, following that, uh, we've got some more guest speakers. In fact, there was a, the email that was sent out today. If you got that email, you'll kind of know the schedule. We've got a lot of folks coming, and I'm really excited about what uplift is going to look like and the conversation is going to look like over the next uh, few weeks. So this is the third week in this series called Mixtape. Let's talk about baseball. Any baseball fans? Any Astros fans? Astros fans? I've become a baseball fan. I've become a baseball fan. There was one uh, prominent comedian who said that baseball is the only sport where you could cram five minutes worth of action into three hours. It's, it's gotten a little better, though. If you're a sports fan, and especially if you're a, a baseball fan, you've, you've witnessed one of the most aggressive changes to this sport in more than a century. I don't know if you've paid attention, but Major League Baseball has made a series of rule changes this year with one goal in mind, and the goal is pretty central, to introduce urgency into the game of baseball, which almost seems to the purists sacrilegious, to introduce urgency into the game. Let me kind of run down some of these new rules. There are now limits on pickoff throws. There are limits on the amount of time taken between pitches and between at-bats. Major League Baseball has introduced a pitch clock with just 15 seconds given for each pitcher to begin their delivery. Batters have to be ready to hit after eight seconds and infield Shifts are now banned. All of these things brand new. They did them all in one year. Major League Baseball felt they needed to make a change. And here's why. Attendance hit an all-time high, a peak in 2007. But since 2007, it's steadily dropped. And one of the culprits to that was the ever-lengthening game times. They got so long. They got so long. Major League Baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred would daily review reports of the lengths of games the night before. And last season, he kept reviewing them. He found it so depressing, he just stopped doing it because they were just so long. So this year, the new rule changes have made an improvement. Game times are now averaging a half an hour less at about two and a half hours. That's about the average runtime of a game this season. Batting averages are up about 12 points, which is kind of nice. Ratings have increased. More people are watching baseball now than last year. And in fact, the limits that have been put in place have been met by fans actually with great enthusiasm. I was one of the skeptics because after adopting a love of baseball, I like the game and I like the pace, but I evidently I'm in the minority. People like it. Even baseball managers like it. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts, he was interviewed by columnist Rick Riley, and he said this, if we'd have had the pitch clock my entire career, I might have learned how to play the violin by now. So there you are. 
Major League Baseball has shown us that the effects of urgency are immediate. They're immediate. So it's with this same sense of urgency that we actually come to the Gospel of Mark, to the final chapter. And when we get there, it's a little bit like a movie that has to wrap up the plot in the final few minutes. If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of how it feels, because Mark has spent much of his Gospel writing these small, short stories, these anecdotes. He's kind of strung them together, and it's made the pace of reading this Gospel move pretty quickly. You can read it in just a few minutes, maybe an hour. So once we get to the end of the, of the Gospel, to the final chapter, our expectations have not changed at all. We, we really don't expect a long narrative, but what we do get there, even though it's just a few verses, it's pretty spectacular. So let's talk about it for a little bit. The final chapter opens. And this, is what, this is where we find ourselves. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn that to, to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Final chapter opens. Jesus has been dead here for three days. And we learn that Jesus was killed as an enemy of the state on a crucifix at the easternmost point of the Roman Empire. In fact, there was no crevice too small, no geographic region too remote where imperial Rome would not make its influence felt. Rome would not even allow the remote city of Jerusalem, a city filled with religious zealots, to go unnoticed or even unpunished if it had even a hint of a stray religious leader that would threaten Rome's influence. Jesus, this part of the story, he was that threat. And he had to go. So Jerusalem offered Jesus to Rome as a sacrificial lamb. This Jesus, by the way, who was not from Jerusalem, he was from Galilee. He was a craftsman by trade. He wasn't a prominent religious leader. He wasn't a member of any political group, but who, according to his own enemies, led a populist movement that his enemies believed to be blasphemous. He claimed to be the Son of God. And maybe even more threatening than that, people called Jesus by another title. They called him the son of David, son of David. And that was a title. And that title meant that Jesus could claim the throne of David. He was an heir to the Davidic dynasty. It was a throne of both heritage and promise for the Jews that that they would one day be independent of Rome. So for those people in positions of power, Jesus had to be stopped. He had to be stopped. So those same Jewish leaders who didn't like Jesus, they arrested him, and they indicted him, and they positioned him as an enemy of the Roman Empire. In fact, they knew that this indictment would ensure Jesus' death. And you know what? They had a case, whether we like it or not. Because if Jesus believed himself to be the future king of Israel, then Rome's rule in Jerusalem is going to be threatened theoretically at least, and the Jewish leaders knew that Rome wouldn't let that sort of talk last very long. So Jesus was crucified along with two other guys, and these two other guys were called in the Gospel of Mark, they were called, you remember this, they were called two robbers. In other words, he was crucified with two other men who were also considered to be threats to Rome. In fact, 
the description that Mark used for those two guys is actually interchangeable with the word zealot. So these two other men crucified on either side of Jesus were firebrands of Roman opposition. And they, along with Jesus, were sentenced to die for their disloyalty. So as we get there, the story twists again. Because those closest to Jesus, you know what happened, they all but abandoned him in his final hours. And you know what, you and I, we know this, we know this. We aren't surprised anymore by the outcomes of the gospel stories, but you got to listen. The first readers, the first people who ever read this gospel found this to actually to be a surprise because they knew something. They knew they had read this. If you read this for the first time, you'd be surprised that Jesus handpicked, he handpicked a group of people from Galilee, from around the city of Capernaum, a city maybe a hundred miles away from Jerusalem, a 10-day journey from Jerusalem. He picked these people to be his friends and to follow him, to learn from him. And these followers, they were also in Jerusalem with Jesus at the end of his life. They weren't welcomed in the holy city either. They were uneducated. They were laborers. They were on the fringe of economic security and cultural integration. In other words, they were from the other side of the tracks. These men who accompanied Jesus, especially, let's talk about the men. The men who accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem were young. Young guys, they were a little rough. They worked hard. Some of them worked hard to catch and sell fish. One of the guys that followed Jesus to Jerusalem was a misguided troublemaker. We're going to talk more about him in a minute. Two of those guys were brothers. They had some anger management issues. And one of those guys that followed Jesus to Jerusalem would eventually betray Jesus to the very authorities who wanted him dead. Jesus was an easy target when he showed up. And his followers, his entourage, kind of proved that, right? He was an ideologue whose vision for community was seen as skeptical to those who controlled the culture. And in fact, in the normal flow of Jewish life, the 12 men with whom he spent most of his time, without Jesus, they would have rarely interacted. Mark, in his gospel, actually makes this apparent. These 12 guys, they didn't always get along. They were pictured with short attention spans. They had trouble understanding Jesus' teaching or his intentions. And moreover, many of those guys whom Jesus attracted, not even just the men, but his larger crowds, they would have been considered unclean and outside of accepted religious life. They could have easily been labeled sinners. So as the pace of Jesus' story in the Gospel of Mark comes to this tense moment-by-moment description of Jesus' final hours, Jesus' closest friends, they all left him to die alone. Really, because they were afraid that they would be branded by the Roman Empire as traitors and receive the same fate as Jesus. And even that political troublemaker we just mentioned, his name was Simon, by the way, and he was called a zealot. Remember that word? Two guys crucified next to Jesus. Simon was called a zealot. He was handpicked, by the way, by Jesus to be a friend and a follower. This guy, Simon the zealot, wanted Rome's oppression of Israel to end, probably saw in Jesus someone who could make that happen, Simon the zealot faded into the background. 
I mean, you don't know anything about that guy. Disappeared. Of all of Jesus' followers, we probably would have assumed to have found Simon, the political zealot, in the fight, in the middle of the fight against the Roman authorities for Jesus. But no, he's completely absent, gone, along with everyone else. And in fact, in what may be the most poignant statement that Mark recorded, I want to show you this. It's from Mark chapter 14, verse 50. We find that when Jesus was arrested, everyone deserted him and fled. In other words, it wasn't enough for Mark to write that Jesus' closest followers and friends deserted him. Mark qualified his statement by saying that they all ran from Jesus as fast as they could. And so Jesus died alone. Mark wrote, though, that a few of his friends, a few of Jesus' friends, the women who had become his disciples, they watched him die, but they watched him die from a distance. They didn't want to get too close either. And it was those same women, those who watched Jesus die. That's a, that's a pretty important apologetic bit of information. They knew Jesus was dead. The eyewitnesses of Jesus is dead. It was those same women who arrived at Jesus' tomb three days later, just after sunrise in the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. This is kind of where we find ourselves in the story. So as they're walking to the tomb that morning, they ask themselves a pretty interesting question. And Mark actually included it. He didn't have to, but he did, and I'll tell you why. They ask themselves, as they're walking to Jesus' tomb, Who's going who's gonna to remove the stone? Who's going to remove it? Now, there was, there, was a, there was a stone there in front of Jesus' tomb. They were going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And Mark included that little, that little bit of information in a pretty passive-aggressive way. Because that question was a way of him communicating us that no man dared to come to the tomb because... Moving a large rock was a man's job in that culture. They, 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 admitted, they admitted they weren't strong enough to do it. They knew it. But there wasn't a man, a strong person to be found here. Not one of Jesus' closest friends even bothered to join them at the tomb. They fled. They were gone. So the women arrived to the tomb and to their surprise, what do they find? The stone has been rolled away. It's gone. Not only that, Jesus' body was gone. Now, they anticipated a dead Jesus here. They had every reason to. They saw him die. They knew he was dead. They brought spices to prepare a dead body. So they had no anticipation of resurrection when they showed up at the tomb. So their first thought here, when they walk into this tomb, was that Jesus' body had to have been removed. There's no body. No body. Instead, though, inside that tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. 
and he was sitting on the right side of the tomb where Jesus had been buried. And he spoke to them. He said something. And by the way, what he says here can't be underestimated. We can't ignore it. Let me show you. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. He said to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, can you imagine? Those are paralyzing words from this complete and total stranger sitting in Jesus' empty tomb, especially for Jesus' only followers who witnessed him die. I mean, they held in their hands the jars of spice and perfume for a dead body that's now evidently not necessary. But the next words this young man spoke were even more remarkable, if that's even possible. Look, Mark 16, verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will See, can you imagine? There you will see him, just as he told you. (laughs) Jesus is alive, and he has come back to life with a sense of urgency. He had one thing on his mind, to go straight to Galilee and wait on his friends. To wait for those who as Mark said, had deserted him and fled. That's who he's going to wait for. His first order of business here to me is so interesting. It's so interesting. He'd just been brought back to life. He's a fully alive human with a beating heart who holds the fullness of God, has all the power in existence. He could have blinked. He could have created an alternate timeline, like something out of the Avengers or Spider-Man, right? He could have blinked and incinerated those who deserted him and done so not because he was angry at them, but out of pure, holy vengeance. He could have done all those things, yet he waited for them. That's what he decided to do because his first priority was not destruction, it was construction. That's what he was going to do. He would first rebuild this community that had broken like a baseball game that had grown tired and stale, he would reimagine what could be, what should be among this community of deserters, of the afraid, of the aimless, of people in isolation. He would gather them back together. And y'all, he would do this first. It was his most urgent and pressing need after taking his second, first breath. But this messenger also specifically mentioned one of Jesus' friends and deserters, the one who famously and publicly betrayed Jesus. The messenger specifically mentioned who? Peter, right. This messenger at the tomb told the women, to specifically tell Peter that Jesus was waiting on him in Galilee. What, what an amazing, what an amazing word of grace here. 
I mean, this word from this divine messenger assures us that if Jesus waited for Peter, his closest friend and traitor, then we can be assured that when and though we failed Jesus, we are not beyond the scope of redemption either. Because a resurrected Jesus is the one who puts all the pieces back together with a sense of urgency. Jesus likes coalitions. He likes communities. He likes places and gatherings that leave us refreshed and not depleted, forgiven and not shamed. That's what Jesus likes. And that's what he was going to build. You know, the first generation of believers, they knew this to be true about Jesus after his resurrection. Go through them. Peter and James and John and Paul, they all knew this about Jesus because they lived it. So here's what I want to do in our, our final few moments. I want us to look specifically at what Paul said about Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to do this by going to the letter of the Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to put this on the screen. Look at what Paul said about the resurrection of Jesus from Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, in this one little statement, Paul says two things here about Jesus. And they're pretty self-explanatory. The first thing, Jesus is the head of the church, of every gathering of believers across history and across the globe. We follow Jesus. That's who we follow. His community rebuild post-resurrection has spanned hundreds of years and billions of people. Because of his resurrection, redemption is possible. Your worst mistake does not define you. Your biggest regret, it does not define you. Those things did not define Peter. They didn't define Paul. They don't define you. And billions of people like you, like us, have found hope in the purity of that message. He's the head of the church. But the second thing Paul says about Jesus is this, that he is the beginning. What an amazing statement. He's the beginning. Something's brand new here. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. By the way, this is new information that's not found in the Gospel of Mark. He didn't say this in the Gospel of Mark. He didn't say this. We find this out in, in, in Colossians. Jesus' resurrection is the reset button for all of creation. You know what that means? It means life can't be the same anymore. It can't, it can't be the same. There's something else after death. Look, we not only live in an era of redemption, we live in an era of recreation. Jesus' resurrection, it anchors the church, the vast, multi-ethnic, multilingual community of followers who will one day, too, rise from the prison of death to discover that death can't keep us from Jesus. It can't keep us from each other. Our community is eternal. And the resurrection is the powerful adhesive that holds us all together in grace and redemption and freedom. Jesus' resurrection, let me put two words up here. 
Jesus' resurrection repairs what's broken in our lives in a macro sense. It brings us all together. It's universal. It's big. It's an umbrella. And it holds us all in place in the midst, by the way, of a culture, of a world that tries its best to keep us apart, to divide us. And it is also Jesus' resurrection that repairs what's broken in our lives in a micro sense. Because regardless of every treason we've committed, like Peter, we're also called to come back. I want to encourage you to lean into this sense of urgency from Jesus. Listen, every second you are disconnected from the fellowship of believers is a second wasted. You're wanted. You are needed. Urgent. Let's enjoy this fellowship in the name of Jesus.